This summer, Joe and I are preaching a sermon series called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. If you are looking for fantastic beasts, one place to find them is in the Bible. For instance, this story from the book of Genesis. God saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. But Noah found favor with the Lord. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And of every living thing, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And then all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and the waters swelled greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and all flesh died that moved on the earth. But God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him in the ark and God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Then God said to Noah and to Noah's sons with him, I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. That's between me and every living creature. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, Cold and heat, day and night, will never cease. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what do you think is the most beloved and well-known Bible story of them all? Probably has to be Christmas, don't you think? cute little baby Jesus and all that. But I want to suggest this morning that the second most beloved story of them all might be Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is everywhere. Every Sunday school curriculum teaches Noah's Ark. Every toddler room at church has a Noah's Ark and there might be another in the stained glass in the sanctuary. Every toy chest at home has a Noah's Ark. Every child has a picture book about Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is ubiquitous. But you have to wonder why. It is, after all, one of the cruelest stories in all of the Bible. Genesis tells us that very early in its history, the world went so awry that God couldn't remember why on earth God created the world in the first place. I am sorry that I made them, God says. I'm going to start over. How, does this, how did this become a children's story? The tsunami in South Asia on Boxing Day 2004 killed 200,000 people. Less than a year later, Hurricane Katrina left 1,400 dead and almost destroyed an American city. $108 billion in damage. In 2008, Cyclone Nargis killed 138,000 in Myanmar. In 2012, an earthquake off the coast of Japan produced a wall of water 130 feet high that traveled six miles inland, 
shifted the main island of Japan eight feet east, tilted the earth six inches off its axis, turned a nuclear power plant into a lethal weapon, and killed 16,000 people. I was in a flood once, a small one, but still. In 2012, during Hurricane Sandy, I was living on the north shore of Long Island Sound. My house was about 300 yards from the sound. And if you've seen Long Island Sound, you know that it's a fairly quiescent and harmless body of water. It's only five miles across where my house is situated, average depth of 63 feet. And yet a year after Hurricane Sandy, the homes two blocks east of my house were still waterlogged and deserted. A couple of hours before the storm made landfall, a Greenwich police cruiser traveled down the center of my street with a loudspeaker telling people to evacuate to the local elementary school. We said, can Dudley come? They said, no dogs. We said, no thanks. They said, if you get in trouble out here, we're not coming to get you. We're not going to risk our lives. We said, we'll take our chances. There's this huge ancient white pine in our backyard and we calculated its height and the direction of the wind and slept in the basement in case the wind crushed one of our bedrooms with that tree. Two blocks south of my house, a tree fell the power line which exploded in sparks and burnt to the ground three brand new expensive waterfront mansions. And the power went out and we were in there in the dark looking out the windows and there are these flashes of light traveling past the window like giant fireflies. And when I went outside to investigate, it turned out they were wind-borne embers from this fire six inches across. So they were aiming for my roof. So it's pitch black. The power's out. The trees are leaning over 45 degrees. And there are these giant fireflies aiming for my roof. It was positively apocalyptic. And so why preach about God's implacable wrath in this young century when we've seen so many floods. The century is only 17 years old. Wikipedia says that in 3000 BC, world population was 25 million, which means that the casualty count from Noah's flood was 24,999,992. Eight survived. How is this a children's story? Now, there's no geological or archaeological evidence for a global deluge near the end of the prehistoric area at the dawn of literate humanity, but the mythologies of many cultures tell this same story by one count 175 different stories about a comprehensive deluge. And so some see this unified chorus of voices as evidence for the historicity of a universal flood. If so many far-flung cultures with no communication, no commerce, and no common language tell the same story, maybe that's evidence that there actually was a universal flood. Two geologists in a recent hypothesis suggest that around 5500 BC, melting polar ice caps raised the level of the Mediterranean Sea so high that it breached its land bridge along the Bosporus Straits and inundated the Black Sea, which until then had been a freshwater lake. Although it might be simpler to remember that ancient civilizations flourished along rivers in the fertile floodplains along the Nile and between the Tigris and the Euphrates, And so winter melt-off floods would have been a frequent, even annual experience for ancient folk. 
And in the dim memory of every culture and every land, there must have been a real core historical experience of a guy who saved himself, his family, his golden retriever, and his livestock by piling them into a boat and riding it out. There may even have been one eccentric but shrewd farmer who ba began banging together a seaworthy craft when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And they made fun of him, but he survived. It's not so much the mythology of Genesis that I have trouble with as the theology. Because it's troublesome, isn't it? Can I throw an awkward sesquipedalian phrase at you? The Noah's flood story is an example of retributive theodicy. Retributive theodicy. I'll, I'll explain. Theodicy, of course, is the attempt to explain God's ways to humanity, as Milton does in Paradise Lost. Milton wants to justify the ways of God to humanity. Harold Kushner's book is a theodicy, when bad things happen to good people. Theodicy is the attempt to answer the blunt question, why does God try to kill us every springtime? And retributive theodicy answers the blunt question, why does God want to kill us every springtime, by theorizing, well, we must deserve it. Natural calamity is God's just, just retribution upon sinful humanity. And it doesn't take a Karl Barth or a Paul Tillich to notice what's wrong with this, right? Comprehensive, indiscriminate holocausts never balance the scales of justice. We should never let God get away with something we'd hold Stalin or Pol Pot responsible for. Did you see Emily in Candide at the Khan Auditorium a couple weeks ago? She was spectacular. Every review pointed her out. You know, Maestro Bernstein's opera Candide, based on Voltaire's story about the Lisbon earthquake from 1755, I hope Emily and Voltaire and Bernstein have given the lie to retributive theodicy long ago in the 18th century. Because Voltaire knew that God would never destroy pious Lisbon while he watched Paris party on. Well, so much for what's not the point of this text. What is the point, right? What does the text get? How is this God's word for us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. One truth the flood story gets right is that the fate of creation hinges on human behavior, yes? Genesis tells us that flood waters inundated the earth and almost destroyed all terrestrial life because men and women were not behaving like creation's kings and queens. 3,000 years later, polar bears drown because their ice flows recede further and further apart. And the ice flows recede further and further apart because human activity is warming the atmosphere. And so until we grow up, there's going to be a flood and creatures will die. First, it'll be the polar bears, and then Santa Barbara, and Miami, and Charleston. Here's a fun little fact and a revealing little irony. There have not been any wolverines anywhere near Ann Arbor, Michigan for 200 years. There may not be any wolverines anywhere in the state of Michigan, even in the Upper Peninsula. 
But here's what's more. It might turn out in the very near future that Ann Arbor, Michigan might be a better place to grow Ohio Buckeye trees than Columbus, Ohio because of global warming. We are going to have to rename all these football teams. <laughs> so that's one thing the flood story gets right. The second thing Genesis gets right is that we're all in this together on the ark, right? The, the human family and its animal friends, we're all in this together. We're all adrift on a shoreless sea. The ark is a spinning blue sphere and the shoreless sea is a black immensity 92 billion light years across. And there is nowhere to land and nowhere else to live. So we're all in this together until the lurching craft comes to rest one day on God's front porch. Two of every kind on Noah's Ark. This ancient, implausible fable from Genesis is as true as the zoology textbook your veterinarian studied to get her DVM. God has placed the vast biodiversity of God's, God's sprawling, leaping, crawling, diving zoo in our church. They're in our boat. Well, the rainbow, of course, is God's solemn promise that this will never happen again. It's a string around God's little finger. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, it's a perfect curve of color stretching clear across the sky. God's everlasting yes to all who live within its embrace. And so, you know, maybe it's a children's story after all. One pastor tells the story of a little girl who loved to play with Noah's Ark. She was living with her mother in a shelter. They were fleeing an abusive father. And every day when the bus drops her off at the shelter after school, she grabs a cup of Kool-Aid and the two allotted cookies, and she settles on the floor to line up the plastic animals to go up the ramp into the wooden ark. And the preacher asks, where are the animals going? And she gives the preacher a strange look as if this were a funny question. She says, they're going home. But the preacher asks, you say the animals are going home. Where is home? And he's caught her in mid-procession. The camels are halfway up the ramp and the rhinos right behind. What does this child know of home? The preacher asks, they're going home. Where is home? And she says, God. And the preacher says, you mean God will help them find a home? And she says, no, God will be their home. The destination is God. They're going home. Have you ever seen a rainbow? What is it for? What does it mean? Doesn't it mean home for all of us? Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your solemn promise. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall never cease. Amen.